As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, uh, we'll be in chapter 2 this morning. We'll take half of the chapter, which will be quite the undertaking, but this is Genesis in chapter 2. And before we read, would you please uh, pray with me? Our Lord, you tell us in, in your word that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Uh, Lord, we are humbled enough to know that we are that simple people and that we need your understanding. So would you shine your light now upon your word? Help us to see what is true of you and what is true of us, that your spirit would guide us in the knowledge of the ways that are good and holy. Uh, reveal this to us now by your spirit. To this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. And this is Genesis in chapter 2. I want to begin uh, this morning in uh, verse 15, which will take us clear to the end of the chapter. Uh, so this is Genesis in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Now, this is the account of how the woman, who's later called Eve, how the woman came to be. This whole text is really in some ways an expansion of what we've read earlier in previous weeks in chapter 1 in verse 27 where we hear this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So now this is an expansion of how exactly that played out. And there's a lot of major themes 
whew, that intersect with this text, and it's going to take more than one sermon. So we'll see this text again. But today, I want to draw out uh, just one theme in particular here. That is the theme of gender. The theme of gender. And I want to clarify uh, some terms up front. Culture tends to make a distinction between a person's gender and a person's sex. That is, that one is a product of the mind and may be fluid, and one is a product of the body and is more static. I suppose that's fine to define terms that way, but today I'm going to use the, the terms gender and sex interchangeably as virtual synonyms here. You won't find either of those words in the text. There's no mention explicitly of gender or sex. In fact, if you Googled it, you will not find the word gender anywhere in the Bible, but the text is talking about that theme, and we want to listen, because we are all gendered people, and we need to know what that means. When I use the word gender here during this time, I'm going to refer then to the male and the female. The, the gender of man and woman, or in the Hebrew, the ish and the isha. So we're going to see the implications of gender, which are huge, but specifically to look at the implications in areas of transgenderism, in sexism, and in feminism. Huge topics, I know, but we're going to touch on those. But in order to do that, first we need to get some good legs to stand on. We need to observe what we can about gender from this text of God's word. So what we're going to do in the majority of our time is make a bunch of observations, which I'm going to collect in three buckets. So if you're a note taker, boy, there's just going to be a whole bunch of bullet points just coming right at you. But I'm going to group them in, in things that are absent, that is, things that are not in this text and are not the main focus of it, things that are the same and things that are different. That is, things the text doesn't mention about gender at all, things about gender where male and female are the same and things where they are different. That's where we're headed. Let's then pull out this first bucket. What here about gender is absent? That is... What are some things that people generally might associate with gender that don't necessarily come from the Bible, at least not from this text? There's a bunch of things that aren't here. The first is temperament. That is, some people would say that male and female are by nature of a different disposition. That some would say that by nature, men are inherently wild and women are inherently domestic. Men are the conqueror, women are the, are the nurturer. There's whole books written about these sorts of things with catchy titles like men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti, which I don't quite understand, or the more familiar one, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Perhaps there is something to this, perhaps not. But we should recognize at least that the, any gender differences in temperament are often based far more on culture 
than they are on the Bible. We here are not from different planets. We are creatures of Earth together. And the Bible says nothing, either here or elsewhere, about male and female having inherently different natural temperaments. Nothing either about Adam and Eve being different or about all men and all women having different temperaments that's just absent. There's the first. Here's the second thing that's absent. There's an, an absence of any mention of different interests. That is, he likes trucks, she likes dolls. He likes fishing, she likes shopping. He likes blue, she likes pink. That's fine, I suppose, if they do like those things. Many people do, but it's also fine if they don't. Whether they like those things or not, those interests or lack of interest in those things has little, if any, to do with gender as we were made. Third, thing that's absent is protection. That is, it's often mentioned in Christian circles that man is made as the protector of woman. And there's an old saying that, that sometimes makes the rounds over the, uh, the internet every so often. The saying goes like this, that, that woman, or man, nope, woman, was made out of Adam's rib from his side. That is, not out of his head to rule over him, not out of his foot to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved by him. And that's a nice sentiment. There's some sweetness to it, perhaps even some truth, but it's definitely a stretch of the text to make that sort of claim, because that's not really a point the text makes. The text is very clear that woman is made of Adam, but the point is that she is made out of his very flesh and bone, not about the location of the bone. I mean, it mentions that he's from the side, but, but you know, if, they were to, if God were to take a bone from his head to make Eve, well, that's a problem because that, well, leaves some brain exposed. And, and if he were to make Eve out of a bone of his foot, that's also a problem because, well, now I'm going to have some trouble walking. It's just a natural choice to have the bone come out of his side. I mean, I got a few ribs to spare anyway. Protection is not the point here, and it is not part of gender in the garden. Fourth and final thing that I'll note that is absent in this text is reproduction. Reproduction, and this is the most interesting one I'll mention, because reproduction is, is part of gender differences little science class here, right? You know, one of the most obvious differences between male and female is that we have very different bodily roles in reproduction. And that is part of the, the larger text of the Bible. 
especially even here in Genesis, that, that Adam and Eve are called, it's not an option, called to have children, called by God to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And Adam cannot do that alone. But reproduction is still not the focus here in their gender at Eve's creation. I want you to look with me for uh, for a moment at the reason that God initially gives for making woman. Did you catch the reason? Uh, Where is it? Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That is, that Eve is created by God as a helper fit for Adam. And we'll talk about the meaning of helper in a moment, but we know helper is not about making babies. You notice that this is a response to a problem that God calls not good. And the problem isn't that Adam can't reproduce. The problem isn't that Adam's not asexual, that he needs a partner to make babies. The problem is that Adam is alone. Now, the text doesn't say that Adam necessarily felt alone. We don't know whether Adam recognized his aloneness or not. In fact, it may be likely that Adam at this point doesn't even know yet what he is missing. It doesn't say Adam felt alone. It says that God saw that Adam was alone. God sees this circumstance, and then he brings to Adam a parade of animals. With that, I'm sure, would come some sort of fun, some sort of companionship. Maybe, maybe Adam adopted a pet out of all those, a little pet dog, maybe even a pet jaguar. It is the Garden of Eden, after all. But still, after all the animals come through, there's no helper that's found. Adam is still alone as the only keeper of the garden. So then God makes his final creation, which is a second man. Not a male, but a second man. And this second man's not just a friend for Adam, a buddy. It's not a son. It's not a brother. It's not even a twin, one who is exactly like him. God makes another man who is similar and yet different from Adam. He makes her the woman. And when Adam sees her, when he wakes up from his deep sleep, then we hear from Adam the first words recorded from man in all of Scripture. It's a poem. You can see it in verse 23. He says, Ah, this at last. This is it. This is the one. This is the answer. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And he is no longer alone. And all is good. But it's not initially about reproduction. 
Those are things that are absent in the text. Now, let's look at this second bucket because this now starts to be more pertinent for us. What about genders, the male and the female, are the same? What about the two genders are the same? The first I'll mention is that they are the same in substance. Same in substance. So we recognize the very clear biological differences, not just in our genetics and in our skin even, between male and female bodies. There's nothing uh, you know, inherently crass or shameful about those gender-specific body parts, but I'll just not mention them specifically. You know what they are, all right? But in the text, the focus on the bodies of the male and the female, the focus is not on their difference, but on their sameness, that they are both of the same flesh and bone. It's significant that God does not make the woman out of a second handful of dust in the way that he made Adam. God could have done that, but God makes the woman from Adam himself which means that they are ultimately both made of the exact same stuff, as are all their children, all their boys and girls and grandbabies, all of that, all would be of one substance, of one flesh and bone. That's the same. That's the first. Also the same is their set of virtues and vices. They have the same virtues and vices, by which I mean there's not one set of good and bad things that God gives to the man and then a different or even slightly different set to the woman. God gives to mankind the same moral standards, exact same, that will run true across both genders. So what is sin for the male is sin for the female. What is righteous for the male is righteous for the female. So it's not only, by the way, a virtue for men to be strong and courageous. Nor is it only a virtue for women to be kind and gentle. We want all of those things, don't we? I mean, how about we take the approach that Scripture does and teach both of our boys and girls to be strong and courageous? That we teach both of our boys and our girls to be kind and gentle without distinction between the genders in the virtues. That means also that there's not things that are boy sins and girl sins, the sort of boys will be boys, girls will be girls kind of thing. It's not as if, you know, men really need to learn to control their temper, their anger, and and women need to learn to control their tongue in gossip. 
You know that those are sin for both genders, right? And not just sin, that both genders are prone to those sins. We are likely to enter into them. I know plenty of men and women that struggle with each of those things. Now, some people would say at this point, well, doesn't Paul give in the New Testament a different standards of virtue to the different genders when he says, husbands, love your wives, and wives respect your husbands. There sounds like a difference there, isn't there? And and there is some sort of distinction that's specific to marriage. Hopefully, Lord willing, I will try to lean in to address the issue of marriage next week. Uh, but, but, But from that text, we surely do not think that love is only a good thing for men to learn, nor that respect is only a good thing for women to learn. Both need both. The third uh, same piece that I will put in this bucket is perhaps the most important here. These uh, two, the men and the women, both genders, have the same task. That is that both genders have the same God-given job. The text is very clear on this. In fact, it's the most clear on this point, that God has made both male and female both fully in his image. That in that sense, there is one no less than the other. They are co-regents together. Both bear the same task of creation to live as servant kings over God's world. And together they're to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. God then doesn't divide the tasks up. We've got a man and a woman. I'm going to give the woman the job of being fruitful and multiply. Your job, have babies, keep the house. We've got a man, your job, you take on the subdue and have dominion. You go out and you work and you bring home bacon or whatever else your family likes. Probably not bacon, they're juice, you know. Uh, So we've got both of them have this whole bundle of image-bearing tasks that belong to both genders together. This is where the, the term helper used here in the text can be confusing to some people. The woman is called a helper for Adam, and that gives the impression to some people that she is some sort of assistant He's the boss, she's the helper. But the word here for helper is not at all about who is in charge, who makes the decisions, who does what work, and who doles out that work. In fact, the word helper here in the rest of the Old Testament is far more often used of God. That God is the helper. You know, earlier in our service, we we even sang about this. We did this on purpose, sneak it in when you're not noticing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, right? Remember that? Here I raise my Ebenezer, which is not a reference to the Christmas guy. Ebenezer means stone of help. I'm going to raise this symbol, this physical stone, as a symbol of help. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. Meaning, I have come this far by your help, by God's help. 
that's actually putting ourselves under God, not above him. We know that when God is helper, that does not mean he is weaker than us or that, that he is subordinate to us in any way. So the word here is about one who is in need of help. That people are ones needing help who are insufficient. We are insufficient by ourselves. So, so when the text refers to the woman as his helper, that's true. It could also be fitting to refer to the man as her helper. Both of them are insufficient on their own for their task. A helper, then, is a partner in God's good task to work and keep the garden. That's what the help is for. And of course, we know that, that it's very logical that Adam and Eve might have divided up how they're going to carry out that task. You know? There's probably even some wisdom in doing that, that they're going to find a system that works well for them about, you know, generally who's going who's to cook, who's going to clean, who's going to mow the lawn, who's going to put the kids to bed, who's going to change the diapers, who's going to pay the bills, who's going to care for the animals, who's going to fix the car. And there's probably quite a lot of overlap uh, in those things. It's not only one all the time. It really doesn't matter how they decide who does what, because God has not appointed man jobs and woman jobs. Nor is it the man who delegates the tasks to the helper because he's the boss. It does not say that. God here is the giver of task. And he has given the same good task to both male and female in his garden. Now, that's the same bucket, and there's a lot in there. We've come now to our third and last bucket of observations, which is where we look at things that are, that are different between the genders. We know that man and woman, then and now, are far more similar than we are different, but there are still significant differences between the two. Man and woman, uh, it's, and those differences aren't just about, you know, who's hairier or, or what. You know, we, we're not just two halves of a whole that are identical halves. Man and woman are uniquely shaped in our bodies, but also in more than just our body parts, in our gender, in our nature. You might notice that in all of creation, in the, in the previous section, that, that each of the kinds of animals, that is birds, fish, beasts, livestock, all that, each of the kinds of animals were made in bundles. They were made by God all at one time, each of them. And it's only man now that is made incrementally. There's the creation of man, the, ma the male, and then a gap of time, and then the woman. He does this n with no other creature. 
So why then does God do it like that? You know, some people would say, well, that's to show the man how much he needs the woman and her help. And maybe, but I don't think that's the reason. Even if it were, that would mean that God still gives to the man some sort of insight or experience that he doesn't give to the woman because he didn't make her first to give her insight of how much she would need him. The reason, I think, for this is simply that man is given by God a sort of priority over the woman. That man comes before her, at least in time. And that doesn't mean that the the man is inherently smarter or better or faster or stronger or anything else different than the woman. It just means that God, by his providence, has chosen to make the man his firstborn. So man is of the same substance, of the same virtue, vice, task as the woman, but he now has some sort of greater authority. And I know, in saying that, that that can be a difficult truth to swallow. The priority of man is often abused and misused by many people, specifically men. But I can't not tell you this. I have to tell you this, not because I'm a man and I'm looking for a power grab to keep my spot. Nor nor is this just, hey, I'm a product of a patriarchal society and history, so I'm just carrying forward what was passed on to me. No, this is because this is what God has shown us in his word. And we all, you, me, man, woman, we all sit under it. And the scripture, even well into the New Testament, after the time of Jesus on the earth, draws on this particular account in Genesis to guide our understanding of the differences between male and female, specifically just on the priority of the man. So we hear in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the argument that Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Paul makes some implications from that. We also hear in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, you know, the emphasis that neither is independent of one another. That's still true, but Paul also makes the point that man is not made up from woman, but woman was made from man. We see that there is a difference in the genders, in this priority of man. And that shows up even here in the text of Genesis 2 as part of God's design. That one of the differences in the bucket is is the way that God's commands play out. So God is God. It's not news. God is God. He knows that he's going to make Adam and Eve, that there'll be two. He knows how this is going to work. And yet he does not wait until after Eve is made to give his commands, to give his forbiddance of eating the fruit of the one tree. Nor does God repeat those commands and forbiddances after Eve is now on the stage. God imparts his commands to to Adam, and Adam is expected to impart that to her, what God has said. 
Adam then is the one in some sense that's held ultimately responsible for their knowledge and for their obedience. And he's the one who is called to account when they disobey, even though Eve is the first one to bite of the fruit. We see it in God's commands. We see the difference also in the process of naming. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God and his authority to name. He names the light and the dark. He names the skies. He names the earth and the seas. He names what he has made. And now in Genesis 2, we get animals who are made by God, but not named by God. That authority to, to name all the creatures of the earth is given by God to Adam before Eve is even there. And then when Eve comes, Adam names her too. Did you notice that? They don't look at each other and name each other. Wouldn't that be cute, though? It's, he says, she shall be called woman. And later in chapter 3, he gives her the proper name that we know her by, Eve. The authority to name is given to Adam. We also see the, the biggest difference, at least I think so, in representatives. In representatives. Here's what I mean by this. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, we hear this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So man, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, clearly is referring to all of humanity, both male and female. But man, at least the word man, represents not just males, but all mankind. And that is consistent throughout the pages of the Bible. Scripture that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is, the, the, the word man can refer to all men and women like mankind. Or the word brothers can refer to brothers and sisters. Or the word sons can refer to sons and daughters. That is, Christians are all sons of God. And it is never the opposite way around. It is never, not once, the female who represents male and female. There is a representativeness that comes only upon the man. And this is not just a product or a limit of language. Language is born out of this fundamental, God-appointed difference between male and female from creation. That man is given by God some sort of prior authority. Now... That's a lot of buckets and a lot of things in the buckets. I'm sure you got all of it, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't even think I did. But all of these things taken together, whatever we're able to glean, we know that, that the similarities and differences between the two genders affect us all. There's just no way around it on a daily basis because we are gendered people. And how exactly this ought to play out in our lives is, well, uh, complex and requires a lot of humility 
and wisdom. I can't even begin to spell all of this out. Uh, now, you know, I could give cautions about how men should not abuse their power and such. That's, there's an appropriate place for that. I can't get it into all of it now, but I at least want to briefly touch, I'm almost done, on three big areas of implication based on what we know of gender. I'll try to do this as quickly and clearly as I can. The first, what are the implications for transgenderism? It's a very common thing now, discussed in a lot of places, transgender uh, people or situations. The indication of scripture is that gender, any person's gender, is not just a product of the body. That is, gender is part of our whole self, our body, soul, and spirit. You are male or female, not just in your body, in your flesh, but in your soul, in your spirit. We know that Jesus was still male, even when his body was in the grave for three days and he was apart from the body. He tells a parable, uh, you know, set in the place of the dead, where there's mention of a rich man, a poor man, and father Abraham. These people are dead, they're apart from the body, but they're still the same gender that they were as they lived on earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, where we all have new bodies, we will still be male or female forever. Gender is a part of our whole self, but a person, even perhaps a Christian, this can happen for Christians too, a person who describes him or herself as transgender experiences something that's trans or across gender. That is, there is a mismatch in the sense of gender, in a crisscross in the body and the mind that are telling me two different things, that I am a male here but a female here or vice versa. And that experience for people that talk about it can be confusing, traumatic even, for the person to feel fragmented in their sense of self and their person, who they are as a gender. We, we know it's the work of God and of Jesus to redeem us from sin and all of its effects. That is, he is moving his people to restore wholeness. We all need that, whether you have a transgender experience or not. So that, that sort of wholeness that he's restoring to us is his work in his time. We're submitting ourselves to his wisdom in this. But when God calls us to holiness, to live according to his word, that calling is through a change in our minds or our hearts, not through changing our bodies. Which means that if a person's experiencing this painful, confusing crisscross of genders within a person, my mind says this, but my body says this, we want to help that person uncross those lines to find a greater sense of wholeness. But the way that we do that is not by changing the body, conforming the, uh, the body to the mind, changing, modifying the body. We want to conform the mind to the body because our body is good. It's given by God, and it's our best indicator of, of our gender. That experience can be very hard, which means transgenderism would call the Christian to compassion. The second area I'll mention is in the area of sexism. 
You know, not, not every mention of any difference between male and female is automatically sexist. There are legitimate differences between the two, at least from the Bible. And so it's not necessarily sexist to use terms like fireman, even if it's a woman, or man-made. Those aren't sexist things. However, there are lots of things that are sexist. Any discrimination against or devaluing of women is sexism, and it's a big problem. There are tons of areas where this happens, but it's very well documented and researched that there's a, there's a pay gap between men and women that devalues women. So for the same work, exact same hours, exact same energy put into it, a woman receives, on average, 84 cents for every dollar that a man receives which means that she has to work an extra 42 days a year just to receive the same pay for the same job that a man does. That's injustice. That's sin, even, that Christians need to address. And, and some people would say, that just means women aren't being bold enough to ask for a raise. Well, even if that's the case, there's still a disparity here that we need to address, that we are teaching our girls to value themselves differently as we are to the, to the boys. We need to teach both of our boys and girls to be confident and bold and to value their own work and worth. Sexism calls the Christian to justice. Third and finally, I know this is long, hang with me, in the area of feminism. You know, some people will ask, can or should a Christian call him or herself a feminist? Can a Christian call himself a feminist? And the answer to that is, depends on what you mean by that term. You know, if by feminism we mean the sort of thing that assumes men are pigs and, and is trying to undermine the priority of man or, or is just well-intentioned or not, trying to emphasize the autonomy of women, that is to assume that women don't need no man, then that is not good. That's not the sort of thing that we want or should praise. That runs against the Bible's teaching on gender and cuts away our fundamental differences and our need for each other. However, if by feminist we mean the sort of thing that strives to uphold God-given dignity in women, it works to refuse to accept all the abuses of gender, the sort of stay in the kitchen and get me a beer sort of mentality. If, that, if that's the sort of feminism that, that works for the sort of equality between men and women that, that emphasizes their joint role as image bearers in the sight of God, then yes, that is very, very good. And in that sense, we could rightly call ourselves feminists. Whether you use the term or not, Feminism would call the Christian to clarity. We need to continue wrestling with these things. These are big and challenging issues around gender. But we wrestle with them not because we're just trying to be socially conscious or woke. 
we wrestle with them because we want to honor God by his grace and power, particularly in the ways that he has created us as male and female in his image. Pray with me. Lord, uh, these things are big and complex in many ways, so would you grant us the sort of grace and humility to receive it? And would you give us the strength and boldness to uphold it? Lord, that whether we are male or female, would you guide us in the way to live faithfully as the people you've made us to be? Uh, we, are, we are flesh and bone, and so we need the power of your spirit in us to do this. Guide us on your very good paths, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.